Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. This week, we are throwing some Karen energy or even cult vibes into art history today because we are discussing TJ Maxx and even more specifically brands such as Ray Dunn in which suburban women can't get enough of. (laughs) We are also adding a little bit to last week's episode when we covered the Met Gala to share some more information and conversations about some of the red carpet looks now that a bit more time has passed since our last recap. Ready to join our cult? Let's art pop talk. (laughs) Hey girl, happy almost birthday. Wow, thanks. If you're listening to this on Tuesday when the episode drops, Gianna's birthday is on Wednesday. I hate that my birthday is on a Wednesday. Nobody likes Wednesdays. But your birthday is a special day. One, because it's your birthday, but two... Not that I'm thrilled about it, but many people love to welcome in (laughs) the new season of fall. Yes, that's true. Um, I feel like I probably said this last year, but I do feel extra special with my birthday being on the first day of fall, even though I don't consider myself like a super fall aesthetic person. I am kind of already upset that it's 740 in the evening and pretty dark out. Yeah. We're entering the depths of winter. (laughs) Depths of winter. Oh, God. Mm. Well, I hope you have a good day. I'm excited to hear all about it. Yeah, it'll be a good day. I think I work in the morning because it's a Wednesday. And then (laughs) I might just go to dinner. But, Bianca, my birthday weekend, guess where... This was the only thing that I wanted to do on my birthday. Guess where I have picked to go? Othello's. No, but very close. Oh, around the corner? Yes. <gasps> oh my god. Oh. I just told I told mom and Adrian, I just want to fuck up some blueberry pancakes. Blueberry pancakes. Mm. The only place to do that is around the corner, which is just a local breakfast restaurant that has been around for a very, very long time and a huge part of Bianca and I's childhood. Oh yes. Around the corner and Othello's best place to get breakfast and then dinner you know othello's they are actually owned by the same family so right. you know if you want to get me that that sponsorship i won't be mad that birthday sponsorship could you imagine if apd got sponsored by around the corner it's my birthday gift to me <laughs> i'm so, so happy happy <laughs> <laughs> all right well Bianca, should we get into a little bit of some of our thoughts from last episode, some of our feelings from the Met Gala? Yeah, definitely. So I'm sure that all the listeners have been inundated with a ton of coverage about the Met Gala. I'm already just kind of like exhausted by the topic in itself, I guess. But we just wanted to follow up with a few things because we do think that they're important. Um... First on the list, I'm just going to go through a bunch of bullet points that we have. I guess an umbrella term for this whole conversation is just irony in itself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think there are a lot of fair criticisms that came out about AOC being at a very (laughs) rich, ritzy function, wearing a dress that said tax the rich. You know, it's a great statement, and I think a lot of people resonate with it, of course, Gianna and I resonate with that sentiment. In practice, though, it's ironic that she's wearing this dress and um, she can get praised for it by these people that are surrounding her at this event, but we've got to put that into actual law. So um, I see, I completely understand a lot of the a lot of the feelings that people had towards that dress, but you know, Gianna and I are hypocrites in ourselves for wanting to talk about the Met Gala, but also, you know, maybe we are the tax the rich dress <laughs> over here at APT where we're just hypocritical about things, but that's sometimes the nature of art history and pop culture. Yeah, well, I even felt as though in our first episode, I, I wasn't even ready to talk about that outfit that much because as you just said, Bianca, I felt very exhausted the minute I logged onto social media after the Met Gala and yeah. just hearing the saturation of, you know, in-depth analysis to uh, not so in-depth yeah. conversations, just likes and dislikes. And I just, 
I got over it really fast. Yeah. And also, this is like a longer conversation for another day, but the way that I feel towards social media these days has got me very overwhelmed and has caused just like a lot of anxiety for me personally. And I, I feel myself slowly, slowly moving away. Yeah. Strongly moving away from those types of platforms. But it was an irony in the sense that like I was trying to grapple with where does she fit in this I don't because I I feel hypocritical sometimes when I say you know I like my celebrities to be celebrities and I like my politicians to be politicians and uh, you know like I don't want Oprah to be president (laughs) I I I want there to be a line between the two Mm -hmm. but then but that doesn't mean that it that celebrities people aren't in nature political beings you know well right and And it's hard because also I think about like my own work, my own artwork is political. Right. And like I'm an artist, um, an art person, an art buff that's breaking those lines and entering the political world. But also you and human beings having a body is political. Like we are political people. And so the lines are crossed. But I think we are all just, or at least speaking for myself, a little bit traumatized by some of the... American icons that have put into positions of power, yeah, political positions, and it's scary. Right, right, yeah. So definitely valid criticisms, and it, like they are extremely important. And um, uh, yeah, I, it, at the end of the day, it's a good conversation to have. Uh, next bullet point in irony is that. In the theme, American fashion in itself, um, there was a lack of discussion on the red carpet from native designers. Um, And after the Met Gala, I did not actually see her walk the runway, but Quana Chasing Horse got a lot of amazing attention. A quote from her reads, It's extremely important to represent and bring authentic and true American culture into this year's theme as Native American culture has been appropriated and misrepresented by fashion so many times. Reclaiming our culture is key. We need to show the world that we are still here and that the land that everyone occupies is stolen Native land. So there were great points raised after the red carpet about how we are talking about an American lexicon, but there are a lot of people in that American history that are being completely wiped away from the face of this carpet. It was interesting, Bianca, as you did mention with her uh, with her outfit, it wasn't covered in at least what I saw just through the live stream, but it did get a lot of attention through social media platforms. That was really interesting. Yeah. But it did get me thinking about just the things that we we didn't see. Right. And I was thinking so much about uh, Halsey coming out with a statement saying, you know, what's more American than a woman having to go back to work after just giving birth? And so that's part of the reason she wasn't at the Met Gala. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was also a pretty large conversation about... 9-11 and how time-wise the memorial was taking place so closely to the Met Gala and there wasn't a lot of Muslim representation on the carpet and then Diet Prada had a post talking about Representative Maloney uh, which we can link for you that was it was really a shame to learn about after seeing her look because as we talked about in last week's episode I liked the look I thought it, it reminded me of Mary Poppins and I like the idea of hearkening back to to a suffragette, hopefully in a positive context. Um, but then we saw uh, Diet Prada wrote, quote, in 2001, Maloney dressed in a burqa to justify the invasion of Afghanistan. So that was really frustrating to see. In regards to Kim's look, we got a DM from an art pop tart who shared that there were some conversations taking place with the situation in Afghanistan and 9-11 and how niqabs and other coverings are being miscast as oppressive garments rather than a woman's personal religious choice, um, except for when forced. But like the the art pop tart were saying, there's like a hypocriticalness of Islamophobia and Islamophobic America praising 
Kim Kardashian in a full covering against the lived experience and discrimination of women who choose to cover um, in this way every day. So that was a really interesting conversation that was brought to our attention. As I was looking more into the look itself, Kim's Instagram caption wrote, quote, what's more American than a t-shirt head to toe? Okay. Um, A Vogue article states that Kardashian, quote, rewrote the red carpet's rules, completely obscuring her features and famous physique. The look gave the reality star something she hasn't had in a long while, anonymity. Kim then reposted a tweet that goes as follows, quote, For someone who is always criticized for being overly sexual, Kim showed she can cover every square inch of her skin and still find a way to be criticized and ridiculed. That is American culture. Finally, she reposted an Instagram story from that same account, Diet Prada, that read, quote, When you're so famous, you can literally make anonymous your new look. Say what you want about her new direction, but it's definitely not boring. So I think this is another really interesting conversation I think there's a lot to be said about Kim Kardashian and this look in particular. I think that both both points of the conversation surrounding her look are justified. I think that people have a very strong right to criticize this kind of covering that she wore uh, in in conjunction with the theme and American lexicon of fashion. I absolutely see that. But I also think that the look in itself, what she's doing with it, with this idea of anonymity is actually super interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, just some just some follow-ups to share with you guys. I know that it's been a lot and you've probably seen a ton of other coverage about the Met Gala, but we just wanted to follow up uh, now that we have a little bit more info about these things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bianca, and, and just kind of to pinpoint about Kim's Met Gala look, the last thing that maybe I'll add to that is my overall concern with the Kardashian empire is is a little bit of the mysticism and also calculative nature that we can't quite pinpoint down because no matter what I feel as though they're in a position to come down to to come out on top right um I I I fully think that the intent behind this outfit is what is being described from her. Right. But do we know if those concerns about it were actually thought through and right. they just decided to go with it? Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. It it kind of is is going to be forever fascinating to me that no matter what, I I do feel like they have such an elaborate team, though, that there's no way, to me, there can't possibly be a way where somebody missed that. It's kind of like when Kim Kardashian photoshopped her her own body in a Skims video, so where you could see her finger be warped Mm -hmm. as it clearly, like, swiped over her... um, like her thigh and her mm-hmm. hips. There is no way that they miss that. Right. It, it It's so calculative and mysterious, and, and we could do a full episode about that mysticism. But I think this is just another layer in which I think about how they construct their, their persona right. or their right. <laughs> empire, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, I think that's a great place to end on that, but I am actually very, very excited to talk about art news today. Um, And this is also a subject that you guys have seen a lot. Um, This was big art news. You probably saw it talked about on big platforms. If you watch CBS uh, Sunday morning, they did a really good... uh, good coverage of the Arc de Triomphe. So let's talk about what's been going on in Paris. So encasing the Arc de Triomphe in cloth was a long-standing vision of the late artists Christo and Jean-Claude, one that finally came into focus this summer. It began with 400 tons of steel beams erected like a metal jacket around the structure, followed by the wrapping, which was conducted by a team of climbers over the course of a few days. Following the project's completion on Thursday, the Ark will remain transformed for just 16 days. A um, very, very 
common timeline for these artists. Mm-hmm. The unveiling of the installation officially titled L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped comes 60 years after Christo first became enthralled with the idea of wrapping the monument, more than a decade after Jean-Claude's death and over a year since Christo passed away last May. Originally scheduled for the spring 2020, the project was first delayed out of concern for uh, falcons nesting in the arch, <laughs> which is interesting, yeah. uh, as their work does bring up a lot of kind of environmental impacts and studies, right. which we'll get into. And then because of the ongoing pandemic, of course. Like many of Christo and Jean-Claude's other projects, L'Arc de Triomphe, Wrapped, is poised to be a fleeting, sublime encounter with an environmental artwork that interrupts the experience of the everyday. So Christo's nephew, Vladimir, and the project directors of the operation who worked with artists for 30 years-ish or onward, explain that the shimmering color of the fabric and the vivid ropes are Christo's quote, poetic interpretation of the blue, white, and red of the French flag. His nephew states, he liked colors that also changed with the weather or the time of day. The fabric is very reminiscent of Paris rooftops, which are very silvery gray. This piece kind of, I think, had us all shedding a tear. I think it was Mm -hmm. very poetic in in a lot of ways to see a project come to fruition after both the artist's passings. Um, If you're not familiar with this dynamic duo, um, they were also in a relationship. I believe they were married um, for... A very long time, but their story is is quite romantic, and and yeah. I did think it was cute. And watching some of the coverage about them, kind of how their relationship came to be. Um, if you are familiar with this dynamic duo, however, one of the pieces that you might have studied in a classroom setting was the Gates, which was a very large installation installed in Central Park, um, where you could walk through these. Um, these rectangles erected out of the earth that you could walk through and they're red and they have orange-ish fabric kind of draping in between them and, and they spanned it over a huge range of landscape in the park. And that was also up for a very short time, only about two weeks. So this is a very common time frame. What was so fascinating to me about learning about this project was how they are actually made and what i mean by that is where is the money coming from Mm -hmm. and this is such a huge 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 part of their concepts as beings as artists and bianca before i get into that a little bit i want to know if you knew about any information about the finances backing this duo's projects um for all these years and what were your initial thoughts about l'art de trump um, I love the piece. I think it's really beautiful. I, I'm sure we've talked about it in previous episodes, but I have a very, very large place in my heart for the city of Paris. I think it's like the most beautiful place in the world, and I just love it. I, I love being there, and I feel like I always can't wait to go back, and I, I just love the city. Um, I think that what I really loved in terms of the coverage of this piece was how people on the streets were reacting to it. And sometimes whenever you live in a place like that, that's so full of historic objects and very beautiful monuments and these kind of icons. I mean, you have the Opera House, you have the Eiffel Tower, you have the Arc de Triomphe, you have the Louvre. You know, there are so many amazing things built right into your landscape every day that whenever you become accustomed to it it becomes the norm and you know I think the concept of taking things for granted was a really fascinating aspect to this piece in particular and whenever newscasters and journalists were asking people on the street what they think about it it made them fall in love with their city even more and they were just talking about how it brings them a new perspective and they're revitalizing a piece of the city that you pass by every day whenever you live there and sometimes you don't even really think about it any longer but then this little girl was talking about how 
now in two weeks or so when the piece is unveiled it's actually going to be another like a new piece of art that's underneath it and they're going to look at the the original arc in a different way once the fabric has all come down so I think it's just beautiful the sentiment behind it is is beautiful and also the fabric is gorgeous <laughs> I just love the way it looks like the shimmeriness of it I think as someone who who really loves that city I think like the glitteriness of the fabric just like fits so well within the landscape and everything about Paris has that like the his nephew said that kind of blue silvery tint to the roofs and that kind of gray aesthetic to the buildings and I just I love it I think it's stunning I, I I loved everything you said, and I I loved how people got it. Viewers yeah. got it. Community members got it. And when they were interviewing people on the street, they were asking a question: Is this art? If it is short spanned, if it is mm-hmm. ephemeral, and I, I think that can be such an intimidating question when talking about contemporary art, but it wasn't an intimidating question for people to answer for this piece. They were like, that's what makes it special. Like art can be fleeting. Not everything is constant. Mm-hmm. And that is the the point of this piece to interrupt that daily experience. Mm-hmm. And so it just oh it just made me happy. I was like, yes, like you got the assignment. Like you get an A, you get an A. Like <laughs> they just got it. And it was yeah. so great to see. Um Another interesting thing about the financial backing for this project was that it did fall in line with concepts that Jean-Claude and Christo practiced through their entire career. So one of the things that I did not know is that Christo got a lot of his money um, through art by doing portraiture and doing mm-hmm. paintings. And then those seeked a lot of popularity. And in the beginning, that's kind of how he met Jean-Claude was by painting her. And right. then they like fell in love and like, kill me. <laughs> yeah, he like, stole her away from her he husband. He did. I get it. <laughs> I, I very much get it. So everything that they were doing with this type of big art installation, this earth art, this architecture art, this uh, interrupting the mundane everyday experience was all financially back through them. Right. And it had to do with this concept of freedom. Uh, they came from places and governments with, uh, you know, a communist upbringing. And so that idea of freedom was so essential to everything that they did. They didn't want to rely on anybody else. They didn't mm-hmm. want to rely on a grant or money from everything uh, for anything they did. So all the money they were bringing in was from other art projects. And I love the way that in past interviews, Jean-Claude explained it, how we are just like any other artist. That's Mm -hmm. how we sell our artworks and that's how we're making a living. And then we get to financially back in and and do these bigger projects that we want to do for everybody. So how was L'Arc de Triomphe funded? So in total, the project cost around 14 million euros, about 16 million USD. But as I just said, like all of Christo and Jean-Claude's project, the L'Arc de Triomphe wrapped will, according to a spokesperson for the project, be entirely funded through the sale of preparatory drawings and other original artworks. And Sotheby's Paris is hosting an exhibition and private sale featuring 25 of the artworks with proceed going towards the project and the artist's foundation. So... I know that we don't always hear it for the auction house and there are a lot of things to like, you know, critique about that part of the art world Mm -hmm. as well. But this is so cool to see this collaboration coming in from all sides. And it feels as though it can be a rare moment where we get to experience that type of thing. And to see all of these different people coming together to really do these artists justice was really really lovely yeah yeah it was such a beautiful memorial to not that that the their work will ever be forgotten or things like that obviously we talk about it on in art history all the time but um it was nice to to see that dream brought to fruition i think it's a really lovely way to memorialize the couple in a way yeah and 
we might share some of these images too, but um, I will share the article from, I believe, CNN, and I'll link it in our uh, resources page for you guys. So if you want to read the full article, definitely go do it. I think it has a great synopsis of the project, but they also share images of the this original drawing that Christo drew of the Arc de Triomphe, and they put the the red rope exactly in these kind of subtle askew ways that he drew it in this image Mm -hmm. and so for something to happen on such a monumental large scale to capture these tiny little details that you might not think matters matters right and you know he said that he would never do a piece in in france if it wasn't going to be um the arc so it's nice that this was you know the last project that wherever he may be or whatever energies out in the universe came to fruition yeah yeah it's beautiful yeah so all right everybody we are going to take a short break and when we come back i promise we will get into the cult of it all has been in the works for a while or another element since the inception of our pop talk that Bianca and I thought was key in getting you all to see the intersections between history and the consumer world and interestingly enough I'm afraid friends this intersection (laughs) is at TJX companies which includes Marshalls, TJ Maxx, Home Goods and more discount stores in other countries. So for today's Art Pop Talk, we are going to take a little field trip. I want you all to take your metaphorical bodies out of APTHQ and place them wherever you frequent a TJX storefront (laughs) most. I don't care, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, but maybe visualize some culturally appropriated decorative objects, art historical appropriated objects, and a crowd of white women fighting over the latest and exclusive Ray Dunn Halloween ceramics. (laughs) Paint you a little picture there. Let me paint you a little picture. (laughs) For today, we are going to focus on Ray Dunn, the person as the artist, how this cult following started, how she became a brand, and why this is an interesting consumer case study, essentially, for us to look at in terms of these objects and their demand. But I want to first open up this conversation um, to other decorative objects we have seen in TJ Maxx that are appropriate and okay sometimes and also not okay to see sometimes. Whether the item is okay or not okay, this conversation will be a good way to get the museum juice flowing. Yeah. So, Bianca, what are some appropriated items you have seen in a store such as this? (laughs) Well, I see a lot of mid-century modern furniture. That's, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if that's your design aesthetic. Great find sometimes at TJ Maxx. Uh, A lot of picture frames. Nothing wrong with a good gold metal frame. Love that. (laughs) holiday decor you know you can get a great uh fall wreath i hear for those of you who like fall uh see a lot of good pumpkin decorations nothing wrong with pumpkin tiny pumpkins (laughs) and they've got a lot of bedding you can get a great you know bed set at tj maxx i was i was in the mood for some sheets new sheets the other day and uh look through their store that's great that's great find sheets are expensive you know that? Sheets are so expensive. What the yeah, hell? I know. We can get a great price if you're a Maxinista. <laughs> there you go. What uh, the hell? <laughs> they've got uh, baskets. They've got boxes. And, you know, those are items that are pretty hard to mess up. I like to think. You know, there are probably somewhere that you could find. I bought a basket at Marshall's the other day. 
I've bought a basket or two from a TJX corporation. (laughs) (laughs) Even this basket was like fucking expensive though. Like I don't think that their furniture is reasonably priced at all. At least Oklahoma City got a home goods. In Oklahoma, I've not frequented home goods that much, but mm. the shit that they have at TJ Maxx furniture wise, but I'm like, oh my God, this basket is like $30. Like, am I really going to pay $30 for this basket? I did. I needed it. What can I say? I gave in. Mm. These are the items, however, that I don't give into that I <laughs> shunt. <laughs> um, so sometimes you might see in these places Buddhist figures. Eastern religious iconography, mostly. Um, I also thought this could be an interesting point to kind of talk about some of the numbness we have to also Western religious iconography. Yeah. And because I am not a religious person, and I, it's, it's hypocritical to say that I don't participate in any kind of Western religious things, because I definitely do, because I participate in holidays here and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth but I don't identify as being someone who practices religion or identifies as being Christian I kind of get uncomfortable even when I see certain like crosses being like mass produced I just don't know equally how to handle it and I think it's also only fair of me to talk about that um, uncomfortable commodification that I have with um, like Christian religion as I do with also uh, Buddhism and other Eastern religions, but also because of Westernism, you know, the, that religion is not being as um, misinformed yeah. <laughs> as as others are. Uh, but Bianca also brought up a good point about like boho chic. And I think only in recent years have we started to have a conversation about that aesthetic being capitalized right. as well. right. Um, so I also wanted to think about how these stores function as a whole because, I mean, like we said, you have great stuff you can get there. A lot of it is affordable. Um, but then, like, where does this all come from? So Gianna, we were talking about this whenever you were up here, but can you tell us what you learned about how these stores actually get this kind of mishmash of products? Yeah, so it's super weird, and I I really didn't know this, or I guess just didn't think about it, but it really makes a lot of sense if you're paying attention to it. So mm-hmm. essentially, these discount stores get their inventory based off the net income of that area. So, and I did see a TikTok about it, this... A woman found like a great find at a TJ Maxx and it was like a really nice designer piece, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. this piece of woman's clothing. And then uh, another person stitched the video and was talking about how this actually isn't that surprising because you're like, what area are you shopping in? Uh, You are probably shopping in a more wealthy, high income area. Um, So if you are on vacation somewhere in a wealthy area, maybe you like thrifting like when i go on vacations like you know i'll go clothes shopping i'll go thrifting she said don't go thrifting just like go to a tj maxx in a wealthy area essentially and then you'll find higher designer pieces potentially Mm -hmm. the other interesting thing that i found out and this was partly due to a conversation i had with miss juliana poro apt fashion expert is that what these stores were designed to do is not happening. Uh, mm-hmm. These stores are very much a part of mass production and fast fashion and is contributing to a lot of those consumer issues because a lot of these name brand, I, I'll say like clothing lines primarily, uh, companies mm-hmm. are making lower quality inventory and they're selling it specifically to these discount stores Mm -hmm. so you're not actually finding a a really good find or oh my gosh like i you know i found this ralph lauren sweater and it's only you know 20 bucks like it was most likely made to go to a discount store and there are certain ways that you can tell i guess if you're really paying attention um you have to look at like the tags and and look at the fabric um and that's just through my conversation with Juliana. But it's funny because I feel as though 
through the visual world and through your your visual lens Mm -hmm. that shouldn't come as a surprise I feel as though like I feel like we all kind of know what clothing we're expecting when we go into a TJ Maxx just like how we know what we're expecting when we go into an Old Navy or a Gap or Mm -hmm. an Ann Taylor Loft like you get the vibe for for what kind of inventory you are getting and maybe your perspective is skewed about what you're getting at a TJ Maxx based on what kind of income area you live in. Right. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but I think that is going to come in handy to think about, particularly with our conversation about Ray Dunn and how people pay attention to what stores they're going to and how they track which stores they're going to. And right stare down employees to make sure that they're not hiding any Ray Dunn merchandise. So Gianna, do you own anything Ray Dunn? I don't. I don't. And I was telling Theban what, he's like, oh, what's today's episode about? And uh, I said, Ray Dunn, do you know who that is? And he was like, oh, no, I don't think. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think you stopped me from from buying something of theirs. (laughs) I think it was a tea towel or something. I was like, no, no, no. That's so funny. I do own a piece of Ray Dunn ceramics. I um, have a little cat bowl for Ollivander. And I actually have to say, I love this bowl because it's really big. It's like a really big, deep water bowl. And I had bought him a bowl. I was just like literally looking for like a water bowl when I moved up here. And um, I just saw this one. I was like, yeah, that's nice and big. Like, I'm going to get it. And I had no idea that it was... Ray Dunn like I just didn't know about the phenomenon yet at that time and um then it broke I dropped it and it broke and I was like shit I need to go find this exact bowl because it's so big I just you know because sometimes with cat bowls because cats are a smaller animal they get these like little tiny water bowls and I just really liked that there was a nice big bowl of water for Ollivander and um, so I have to say I'm very happy with the size of this bowl. I did go back and I, I got another one and this one is pink. So maybe I have a, uh, like, I don't know, maybe I have a cool rare find because it's a different color. I don't know. <laughs> but now I now that I know about it, I do feel a little bit weird about having it. But it's okay. It's for Ollivander and he doesn't mind as long as he's taken care of. <laughs> well, you know, if you like it, like that, that's fine. It's a great Twist. size. I have to say it's a very great great size pet bowl yeah i also think the more that i learn about chuggy and how it's entered our vocabulary it has become interesting in the sense that people are almost only inherently critiquing female experiences and i feel like that might be something good to acknowledge because what we are talking about essentially is the popular consumers for Ray Den are suburban white women primarily. Um, And Chugi might be entering some of our listener brains. And I think take that for what you, you know, will and, and how you use that in your vocabulary. But because this has become such a huge cult following, it has become such a big part in our consumer and art world that that we are going to critique it but we are also critiquing these suburban (laughs) white experiences yeah so I want to talk a little bit about the woman herself if you didn't know Ray Dunn is a real life practicing artist so I'm going to read from her about page on her website Ray Dunn is from California and resides in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in industrial design and worked in graphics and fashion for several years before discovering clay, which has now been her passion since 1994. Ray currently has a line of wares that is sold nationwide. Her inspiration comes from the earth and she finds beauty in simple shapes, natural forms, and found objects. Her work captures the simplicity and playfulness that are the cornerstones of her own life. A classical pianist, painter, and frequent world traveler, Ray has been influenced by many cultures and artistic pursuits. Ray's work is deceivingly straightforward. Quote, 
I don't think my art is a reaction against the complexity of life today, but rather a way for me to embrace the joyful, spontaneous elements of daily life that seem to be wanting in so much of what we do. Today, more than ever, I think we all need to slow down and grasp that which is honest, real, and personally satisfying. I try to express those feelings in all of my work. Her work is strongly influenced by the Japanese aesthetic of wabi-sabi, the beauty of things imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. The artist said, quote, I don't strive for perfection in line and form in my work because for me, the balance I'm trying to achieve can't be represented in that way. The incompleteness and imperfection of my work is just part of the story. Just as the absence of something in our lives can stir powerful feelings and show us the way to wholeness. Built entirely by hand, Ray's work often elicits a physical response, asks to be touched, and provides a sense of reassurance that we have our feet on the ground. Quote, In my own way, I am driven to find that balance between expressing something that is deeply meaningful to me and creating a sense of joy that might quietly touch the lives of others. So we're going to unpack a lot of what's going on here um but i wanted to emphasize this point that was um noted in a magenta article ray dunn said quote i didn't go to art school and have never had any real art classes i believe that because i was truly uninformed it allowed me to make and break my own roles because i was allowed so much creative freedom as a child it made me think that anything was possible and i always knew that i could have some sort of career of creative career i was always very much into handwriting fonts and words originally i thought i wanted to be a graphic designer but as i began doing that everything started to shift towards technology and i quickly lost interest dunn is now in her late 50s and didn't start working with clay until she was in her 30s So Gianna, let's talk about what we think about Dunn's journey to finding a career as an artist and how her statement is kind of, uh, let's unpack it here. Yeah, so obviously her journey to how she came to ceramics is is totally lovely. Like, love that journey for you. Love that you don't have a formal training in ceramics. That's totally fine. You know, Mm -hmm. it's part of what we talk about on APT. Like, I'm not going to put academia up on this higher pedestal. Like, you are clearly a skilled ceramicist. And looking at some of her her original, like, early handcrafted work, Mm -hmm. um, it clearly has a style. And and that's totally great. Things to unpack in her statement, I find really interesting. Because if you were just reading her concept, and let's say you didn't, No, like Ray Dunn is not an empire at this point. It's not a brand. Mm -hmm. It's not owned by this magenta company. Mm -hmm. Thinking about this concept is really, really interesting. And I think from an artist's perspective, it's it's eloquent, it's well-rounded, and the simplicity of it speaks through in the concept and in the writing of it. Mm -hmm. However, I I don't know. Maybe imagine whatever that looks like to you as you're reading. Right. But then break down that barrier, and we know that Ray Dunn is this brand and has become commodified and mass-produced. Right. The concept doesn't fit the reality anymore to me, Uh, which it's interesting that maybe we haven't tried to change that. And I'll talk about this a little bit um, later in in answering one of your other questions, Bianca, but I, I think harnessing this style of of simple shapes and, and natural forms and and found objects like sure I think that all comes through just fine mm-hmm. but it's the it's talking about the lack of perfection that right that to me really doesn't make sense anymore because what you're doing is you actually perfected one of your designs and your concepts, and it's now being sold and mass-produced. So therein lies the irony. Right. I think that idea, I don't think my art is a reaction against the complexity of life today. There's this sentiment in her, across her statements, that also don't add up with the kind of text that she provides across her pieces. Like, I think that's an also really interesting comparison to think about 
the words that she's using to describe her pieces and then in itself the words that actually appear on the pieces themselves well you know it's interesting because i i might actually think a little bit differently because if you finish that sentence what she says is but rather a way for me to embrace the joyful spontaneous elements of daily life so by marking everything and that is kind of something that we do make fun of you know pen holder pen holder coffee cup but coffee first right piggy bank oink is that in a way pulling a jean-claude christo by interrupting the everyday experience by slapping a label on it yeah, I guess there's something that's that's a really there's great some, there, point. There's something there yeah. that kind of is reading to me as the same. And that I don't mind. Like, has the aesthetic of it all kind of jumped off to an overwhelming point? Yes, and, and we'll get to that. Mm. But let's let's separate that for a little bit. Th- that part of it doesn't bother me. I might not like the aesthetic, but but that part doesn't really the concept doesn't bother me. That's really interesting. That's a that's a great point, Gianna. It's really hard to separate those two things. Yeah. And that's what I, I'm like, I'm trying to get you guys to do, those of you listening, because it's really easy to laugh at what we're kind of talking about. And a lot of us listening might not like that aesthetic, but let's let's kind of put our bias aside a little bit and, and we'll get into that. But Yeah. So let's actually talk a little bit more about her work in particular. When she first started making pottery, her instructor would tell her to smooth out the fingerprints and the flaws that were made in her pots, but she actually disagreed. She said, quote, I just liked it because it looked like someone made it rather than a machine. <laughs> I've always been drawn to things that are not perfect, she explains. I love ruddy skin with freckles. <laughs> to me, it has more character. I love wrinkly clothes, things that show life and usage. Very interesting statement. By this point, you've probably very much become familiarized with her aesthetic and her pottery. Um, It's stamped with these long handwritten letters, which is now licensed to Magenta. And this is actually sold exclusively at TJ Maxx, Home Goods, and Marshall. So this is an interesting point, like hearkening back to Gianna, what you're saying about specific companies making things for these TJX companies. Magenta exclusively sells them at places like TJ Maxx. Magenta is the company that manufactures Raydun products, um, and the company in itself has seemed pretty baffled by the demand, and they call it, quote-unquote, passion for the goods. Quote, when we started partnering with Ray, we had no idea that this was going to become such a huge thing or even a collector's item really interesting verbiage thinking about pieces of art right as a collector um every day the brand receives messages from ray dunn buyers asking them to authenticate her pottery pieces that are being bought and sold across the internet there are actually replicas of ray dunn where the manufacturer has to be like no this is not authentic it's not ray dunn um the senior marketing strategist at magenta compares the replicas to like a copycat designer bag quote you would have never thought that it would turn into something like this um and magenta doesn't control the exact number of what products go to where so that part is actually up to tjx companies and how much they buy of a certain style um and that that kind of controls maybe what's rare and what's not Dunn says that it makes her really sad that people resell her work. Um, She, quote, wishes that she could sell more of her handmade stuff. Quote, when I do, I know that people are buying it and reselling it for hundreds of dollars more. And it really upsets me because, I don't know, I feel like I'm being used. So back to what Gianna, you were talking about her kind of earlier pieces that you've seen on her website. She actually, I was reading an article that She had an Etsy page, which is no longer in service, where you could buy her kind of original handmade items that are a different aesthetic from the Ray Dunn brand. And Mm -hmm. there were also a lot of photographs online, and she has an Instagram where she posts photos in her own studio. And I really couldn't pick up on 
where the rest of these products are produced or how the production process actually takes place. The closest thing I got was that line from Magenta saying that they are the the manufacturer. I find it so interesting that people come to Magenta to authenticate a piece of Ray Dunn when it's still just a manufactured product. So I know that there are copycats, but Ray Dunn herself cannot be making, hand-making every single piece that is distributed across these companies. So I find that like authentic, the, the desire to have something authenticated by a mass production line is wild to me. Yes. So that is a very good segue into some of the things that I want to talk about. Um, so and Bianca, in our document, you asked me like a question. What do we think about the mass-produced imperfect ceramics? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about mass production and goods and artwork and fine art and in the art world, and that's fine. That's the thing that happens. You know, we can critique maybe some of the environmental impacts, the ethics of that, but breaking down in the sense of just like selling art and how it's made, mm-hmm. it's a legit thing. I think perhaps the appeal for Magenta to get involved with Ray Dunn is the artisanal perception that they can commodify and control the name and the aesthetic Mm -hmm. because the aesthetic really isn't going to change at this point. And if it does, it'll be like a whole different kind of like collection. Yeah, right. As used in a commercial sense. It's weird when you find Ray Dunn's website, um, and you talked about her Etsy page a little bit, but it's like her artist page. Right. It's a website. It seems really outdated. Yeah. And it does have some of her like shows listed on there, and she's got her about page. And the last show listing there was in 2019, and it talked about some places where she was a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting, just that time stamp that maybe within even the last couple of years that she's really, unfortunately, I mean, it is really sad, kind of lost that ability to be able to participate in true artisanal uh, ways now as a maker. But when you go to uh, Magenta's Ray Dunn tab, you can shop the Heritage Collection, the Classic Collection, or the Artisan Collection. (laughs) So with some of the tone that has taken shape through this primary company that, you know, manufactures this Ray Dunn Mm -hmm. name and product, I get a vibe, a feeling, or a sense that okay, instead of profiting off the genius male artist, we are going to do what we do to women instead and profit off of the gentle female artisan. And there are a couple of things that I want to point out here. First, I'm not insinuating that Ray Dunn herself doesn't have any control over her own image or her brand or, or her designs. Like I only know what I know and mm-hmm. we only see what we see. And from what I have read in interviews with her, she does seem like a very soft-spoken person. That's how she's mostly described. She seems like she's a very calm person, has a very calm presence, and gives off a very balanced um, energy. And I think that is reflected in the inception of her ceramics that led to this brand. Um, I do think all those things are accurate. It's just the monster that she has created, which is a direct quote like from her, mm-hmm. that has taken shape in this really interesting way, which is right. why we are doing this kind of case study of it. Um, so, however, with all that in mind, I think that that's an energy that people are comfortable with and that mm-hmm. companies are comfortable in investing in. And also why her work is very popular in Midwest and Southern regions of the States too. So I think those are some key factors. Like the way that she is portraying herself is totally fine and totally lovely. And her inception of, you know, her Ray Dunn design is all totally fine. But I think that there are some key reasons as why this this has 
been so popular and why it's been commodified. Yeah, that's really interesting. In light of that, let's get into what we now associate the brand Ray Dunn with. And I couldn't find too much about Dunn's background in the artist herself, other than, you know, she grew up in California. And when Gianna and I started thinking about this, you know, about her brand in particular or the brand um, and reading about its cult following, we had a certain perception about the brand itself. Like we didn't really know that Ray Dunn was an actual person before doing this kind of investigation. And we, we know her consumers and Ray Dunn as a standalone brand, as a standalone identity sounds like something that would appeal to white Southern ladies. And I think that in itself is a really, I don't know, thought provoking idea that Ray Dunn, the brand could be something that's profitable from Ray Dunn, the person. I just think those two items are really interesting. Um, Within the past few years, we've all become very mysteriously aware of these associated peoples of the brand. And these peoples are known as Ray Dunn hunters, the Ray Dunners, or the Ray Dunnies, among, you know, other nicknames. They are basically Ray Dunn superfans, and their main mode of communication is Facebook groups. Um, There are hundreds of them, both with national and regional names like Ray Dunn newbies, Ray Dunn addicts, girls just want to have done, and even (laughs) what have I done? (laughs) On these pages, there are, you know, over 25,000 members. Um, The hunters trade secrets and tips for scoring the most coveted pieces of Ray Dunn merchandise. A lot of this has come to light since videos went viral on TikTok where TJX employees talked about quote-unquote the Ray Dunn women who enter the store and buy all of the Ray Dunn products and then upsell them. Uh, Because of the price point that these items usually sell at in-store, there is a huge market to upsell these products. Some people have noted online that a $17 oink canister, like in the shape of a little pig, can be sold for $250. Um, there are a ton of examples like this. People are selling things for you know up to $1,500. Um, this is a game. You know, it's a type of hunt to find rare pieces. Um, a Vice article reads, "Quote: Therein lies the brand's success with quote." live, laugh, love, slash wine mom culture. The notion of doing the most with less. It gives buyers a price accessible gold star on the forehead with an influx of one word affirmations and reminders for self-care or valuing family. Although the latter of which lives in a very his and hers, hetero, traditional nuclear family zone. Ray Dunn is about making you and only you feel seen in your attempts to try. I thought that was a really interesting quote from Vice. Mm. Um, Like Gianna said, Dunn, the artist, admits that she created a monster with her now ubiquitous aesthetic. She claims it was an accident. Quote, I never intended on becoming a brand, much less creating this weird phenomenon. As thankful as she is for the enthusiastic support, she says, quote, it also makes me sad that people fight over it and people will go in and buy everything and resell it. Unfortunately, she tells us there's nothing she can do about that. After designing the pieces, Dunn essentially has no part in the production of the magenta lines, meaning that she doesn't have control over where the pieces are sold and, you know, who buys them. But also much like an artist, and I, I don't mean to interrupt right. here, I think no, it's interesting. No. I, I totally get what she means because she has this super specific following and it's created this 
also kind of competitive and it's sometimes unkind culture right and it's hard to like be the mother of that and i get that but so many people view art as an investment and and people do buy that art for different kinds of financial backing and and be able to sell that in the future and oh like you know what is my return going to be on that in five years right oh it's going to go up like those are all common practices in right. the art world, but I understand this this culture has put on one of these ceramic pieces is not the best. Right, but that you're so right, Gianna, and we talked about this in our art market episode. Um, this is definitely brought up in the documentary The Price of Everything, which we recap in that episode, and I can't remember who it was, but that artist who sees his work, maybe, maybe it was Rauschenberg, uh, who sees his work go for millions of dollars at an an auction and he was like telling the buyer what did you do what did you do and the buyer's like well I made you famous you know and so it's just like Mm -hmm. it's such an it's so wild to see this happen before our eyes and I think maybe that's something that I'm struggling with is like we're not used to seeing this necessarily like happen right at the outset with a living artist we're used to we're, we're used to talking about this type of discussion in a very historical context where an artist mm-hmm. gets famous after their death and that's clearly not the case that's happening here but you're so right in that you know when artists create work many of the times they're not creating it for themselves they're creating it and it is being sold to other people and in the case of Freeports, you know, there's so much yeah. art that's just like an investment and it is yeah, a piece and, to be held in storage. And she can feel about that however she wants. But I think that's one thing that you do have to grapple with as an artist. Like I am critiquing the female experience in the consumer world, but yet I am wanting people to buy and, and consume my artwork because I deserve to have also a living, you know, paying job and be a contributing person in society. But also, you know, I'm sure the Gorilla Girls aren't too happy that their feminist posters are just shoved in the feminist wing in the art museum. Like, those are all things that we have to deal with. Right. And hopefully, like, with conversations like this, you know, we are just bringing that to light. But, but yeah, it's like, sis is like, this is how it is <laughs> a little bit. Right, right. And I appreciate her coming out and like offering this statement. So I think that's like the biggest yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. she wants people to treat each other with kindness. And it is wild, the stories that are taking place inside like a TJ Maxx where people are not being kind to one another. And I think that's, you know, that's a very unfortunate problem. And I can imagine like how she feels about that. And she says... I'm not trying to be something fancy or different. My work is me. So, you know, it's it's with the intent behind it. Wholeheartedly believe the intent and and the story and the inception of it. It It's just wild that it doesn't fit the concept anymore. But the consumers who are buying this um, aren't really, like, connecting those dots. I also think the way in which some of these women in particular really idolize her and she has talked about how like in the beginning I think she was teaching ceramic classes or she would people come to her studio or she would have these interactions and these people would just start crying and right and I did look at her Instagram kind of going down the rabbit hole and she posted this picture of herself in the studio kind of cute staged picture and she was in a Ray Dunn t-shirt that said imperfectly perfect Mm mm-hmm Something like that. And the caption was talking about how I'm not a perfect person. None of us are. But Mm -hmm. in the caption, all these women were like, you are so perfect, Ray Dunn. This is an absolutely beautiful photo. Like, there is nothing about you that's not perfect. (laughs) Just like, we are so, like, past the point, you know? Right. And I wonder how many people, I mean, clearly there's a large chunk of her consumers that know that she's a living person, but I wonder how many people... first just think of it as a brand I don't know I mean I'm not involved in that scene so surely it's like a well-discussed matter like you know she she has a new book you know that if you want to be like apt spy and join one of these facebook groups you know you go for it you should play jokes like how the the crazy thing about these facebook 
groups is that they're supposed to be there to help each other, you know, find the best deal. But right. it is some sabotage bullshit. These women right. will go tell other people, that, oh, you can find all this redone stuff at this location. And it's totally fake. And right. they're just, they're, they're giving them false information so they right. can get all the best stuff for themselves. Right. There's a quote that I want to read in thinking about this, like, fandom. Quote, it's kind of like people that collect Beanie Babies or Louis Vuitton purses or vintage shoes. Um, this is from a Ray Dunn hunter and TikToker. Some people don't get it, but if you get it, you get it. And I think that that's honestly a great quote to think about. We all have fandoms that we're a part of that we would do anything for, but it's interesting because of the consumer base, the perception that we get of this this fan this fandom in particular um and even you know as we're talking through this it's like who would verify a, a, a ray done piece of pottery well if i purchased you know something that was from gucci on the real real i'm happy to know that it's verified but in the end does it matter you know so it's it's so wild to think about this thing that you get from tj maxx and wanting it to be verified but in any other circumstance i would probably do the same thing for something else you know like oh i'd want to verify that this is like an authentic piece from a designer brand like people do that all Mm -hmm. the time but i don't know why that concept is like disassociated from this brand in particular you know and as time goes on i think collector exhibitions are wildly fascinating yeah and i've already seen exhibitions where my iphone my 2000s Green camera has been in an exhibition and i cannot wait for the day that um ray dunn is put in this lineage of uh you know francoma fiesta and now ray dunn yeah. right Right, totally, totally. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. Super, but I don't know. I found this conversation wildly fascinating. And, uh, you know, if, if you have a Ray Dunn, you can put it right next to your, your fake Jeff Koons bookend, uh, <laughs> you know, dog balloon. The dog dude. balloon that you got at a museum gift shop. I did see, Bianca, I was at TJ Maxx. This was a while ago, and I, I forgot to send you a picture of it, but it was a balloon giraffe, and I was like, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, okay, so I went to Spirit Halloween this weekend, and they had a balloon dog costume, and I was like, a Jeff Koons costume? <laughs> Even though a balloon dog is like an actual thing and Jeff right. Koons didn't invent the balloon dog. <laughs> but in my head, I was like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's like Jeff mm-hmm. Koons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no escaping. <laughs> and neither is there any escaping from the APT cult. So if anybody, if any of our listeners are a dunner or if someone has, you know, found their way into the depths of a Dunner's Facebook group. You know, help a sister out. Let us know what it's like on that side of Facebook. Totally. <laughs> well, any other thoughts for today's episode, Gianna? I think I I think I'm all thought out, you know? <laughs> I don't think I got I don't think I have anything left. <laughs> I hear that. Well if you have any thoughts, please share them with us. You can join our Art Pop Tarts Facebook group. You can always DM us across our social media at Art Pop Talk. You can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com. And if you liked this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. Leave us a nice little review telling us, you know, how much you love this conversation. And I think with that, Gianna, we will talk to you all on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond. 